Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, hey everyone. Good to see you. Sorry we're a bit delayed. You know, things get a bit hectic sometimes. Massive apologies. We're here though, so don't get too argy-bargy with this. Uh, we weren't here last week because I was in Croatia on Bosnian holiday. Needs to get away after this year. Um, but we've got a very special show today and it is on the crisis of US democracy, something which I think always had some very heavy caveats. In fact, we'll talk about that. Um, now, we're putting this obviously in the context of the Supreme Court rulings, not least on Roe versus Wade, but it doesn't stop there, as I'll explain, uh, in which a conservative, a radical conservative majority is using that majority in order to push the ideologically, you know, a right wing ideologically charged agenda. It's very, very straightforward. Now, it's becoming increasingly common amongst many commentators, um, including those who I suppose would put themselves in the center to talk about the prospect of the US degenerating into an outright authoritarian right-wing regime of some description. In fact, a Canadian senior, a leading Canadian political scientist predicted that the US could become a right-wing dictatorship by 2030, which is not that far away, let's be honest, that's eight years away. Others even talk about the possibility of civil war. Now that might sound hyperbolic, but there is obviously a growing crisis. now. I think it's important to say, and we've got two brilliant guests, I'm not going to talk very long, that the US was founded as a republic, not a democracy. And there is a distinction there. And the so-called checks and balances that were introduced by the founding fathers of the United States were intended to put a kind of check on the so-called passions of the American public. Now, one study a few years ago, a detailed academic study, suggested that the US was actually an oligarchy rather than a genuine democracy. You can see the role of obviously of money in politics. It's bad in Britain, but it's even worse in the United States. Now, as we know, the Supreme Court has just struck down Roe versus Wade, which was the landmark 1973 uh, um, ruling by the Supreme Court to protect the right to abortion. Um, now, it doesn't stop there. They're striking down, um, for example, uh, protections of, of voting rights, civil rights uh, era legislation on voting rights. Uh, they're giving states sweeping power, uh, state politicians power over elections, which will allow Republican politicians to even more rig the system in favor of, uh, of their own electorates, um, predominantly older white voters who vote for the Republicans. They're weakening the division between religion uh, and states, uh, weakening gun controls, even in the aftermath of the horrific massacres, of course, we've seen recently. Now, let's just have a little listen to AOC, who's obviously one of the leaders of the squad, progressive caucus of democratic politicians. Let's just hear what she had to say. Of course, on Friday, they overturned both Casey and Roe v. Wade. What is your reaction to what you're hearing from the Supreme Court? Well, I think one of the things that we're seeing here is the Supreme Court is actively delegitimizing itself. And in and what we have... When, when you mean delegitimize, and I, I want to hear the rest of the answer, but yeah. I hear that word delegitimize, and certainly in Casey, they actually were worried that they would lose legitimacy in the court. They'd do irreparable damage to the court. Yes. What do you mean when you say delegitimize? So what that means is that the Supreme Court has a power... Its power is in whether its rulings are heeded and respected, and if so, how much and to what extent. And when we have the framing of, you know, the, the framing of our government, the presidency, Congress, the president, Congress, and the Supreme Court are supposed to be three co-equal branches, co-equal, none with supremacy over the other. And when any one of those branches overreaches its authority, it is the responsibility of the other two to check the overreach 
of, of, that, of that authority. The Supreme Court has engaged in the overreaching of its authority in denying the human and civil rights of any pregnant person or person that could become pregnant in the United States of America. They have engaged in overreach, and it is the responsibility of the president and Congress to put the Supreme Court in check because they have delegitimized themselves. I should say, by the way, I missed out one of the key rulings of the Supreme Court, which weakens government power to deal with emissions. Now, that's obviously quite an important ruling because of the existential threat to human survival. Now, it's true, Joe Biden has come out against the Supreme Court's decisions. Let's hear what he has to say. The one thing that has been destabilizing is the outrageous behavior of the Supreme Court of the United States and overruling not only Roe v. Wade, but essentially challenging the right to privacy. We've been a leader in the world in terms of personal rights and privacy rights. And it is a mistake, in my view, for the Supreme Court to do what it did. Now, the Republicans have been going through this process you could call urbanization. Um, in Hungary, uh, Viktor Orban is the leader of what is essentially now an authoritarian right-wing regime, uh, which is still tolerated as an EU member state, by the way. Um, and the ruling party, Fidesz, was, used to be in the Liberal International. It was a supposedly then centre-right party, radicalised in power, essentially hollowed out the substance of democracy and established a de facto dictatorship in that country. And the Republicans, whatever you think, as I've said about the heavy caveats on American democracy, have increasingly just disregarded what you would regard as basic democratic norms. And whilst the Democrats have attempted... Uh, the leadership have pursued a strategy of cross-partisan working. The Republicans haven't done that. They just run a, run a scorched earth policy uh, with with um, devastating consequences. Anyway, I'm about to bring in the two guests. If you're watching, do click on the YouTube link. I know lo lots of you watch this on Facebook. Well, click on the YouTube link. Uh, press subscribe and press like. Good for the algorithm. Uh, do leave your comments. Um, if you're listening to the podcast, great. Leave us a review. Do support us on patreon.com forward slash omdose84. Keeps the show on the road. All these shows, documentaries, interviews that we do. Um, and I'm now going to bring in our guest. We've got the brilliant Matthew Sitman from Know Your Enemy podcast and Francesca Fiorentini. I hope I say his name right there. Ugh, sorry, that's my fault. Uh, from you the Bituation. Oh, that was all right, wasn't it? It wasn't too bad. Ish. Uh, from the Bituation Room podcast. Have I also said that correctly? Yeah, you really did. Yes. I've smashed <clears> it. <throat> Great start. Great start, guys. So let's just, you know what, I want to just put this just quickly. Let's just kind of historical context, just firstly with the Republicans. I'll put this to you, Matthew, first, because I know you do sure. the history of the night, your podcast. I think, you know, I did talk about urbanization, about the Republicans shifting in character, but it's true to say, isn't there's more continuity than that? It's not like, you know, I mean, I, I find the rehabilitation of monsters in, in politics nauseating george w bush you know who committed heinous <laughs> war crimes and then oh he gave a sweetie to michelle obama oh. <laughs> oh he didn't do he didn't do crude tweets like donald trump oh yeah he massacred hundreds of thousands of arabs but he wasn't he wasn't as vulgar yeah so am i what do you think about continuity here is this have the republicans really how much have they actually changed in terms of what they've become um, you know, that's a good question, uh, because I think one way to answer it is to say, you know, the Republican Party has definitely moved right as the conservative movement, the right wing movement in the United States, the kind of, you know, um, some people started in the 1950s with the founding of National Review, the well-known conservative uh, publication. Um, so, you know, you can go back to the New Deal, you know, opposition to new, the New Deal. But this 20th century uh, uh, modern American conservative movement has, you know, entered the Republican Party. The Republican Party became an ideologically conservative and right-wing party. Um, but it took a while, you know, for some of the moderate Republicans, the Rockefeller Republicans, those types to eventually, you know, kind of, be defeated in primaries, pushed out of the party, you know, just it wasn't uh, really a place for them anymore. And that's where the continuity comes in, because, you know, the Republican Party at various points over the last few decades has, again, you know, sometimes included more moderate members or liberal Republicans of a, of a type. But the the modern conservative movement that I'm describing, um, you know, uh, I mentioned the New Deal. I mentioned, you know, when National Review was founded in the 1950s. But, you know, I think of the various factors that you know, were behind its origins, opposition to the civil rights movement and desegregation, 
otherwise multiracial democracy was at the very heart of the conservative project from the start. Um, and this is a you know distinctly anti-democratic thrust. I mean, you can read uh, the infamous uh, Bill Buckley editorial in National Review in 1957, the South, why the South must prevail, saying even where the white race doesn't uh, uh, have more people, where it doesn't, uh, you know, um, how should I put it, where they where they dominate, where they don't nominate, dominate uh, numerically, they still deserve the right to rule. And, you know, mm -hmm. you can see, you know, in 1980, Ronald Reagan, uh, one of his, he gave an infamous states' rights speech uh, in August of 1980, kind of heading into the fall campaign that year, um, uh, outside a town where civil rights workers were murdered in Mississippi uh, in the 60s. Um, you know, uh, we have people like Paul Weirich, a founder of the Heritage Foundation and a major um, figure uh, in the uh, on the right uh, in the United States. He said flat out in 1980, the same year Reagan gave that speech, that frankly, the more people vote, the worse it is for us. Yeah. Um, I could go on and on. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the continuity comes into the rights. Um, uh, uh, it's been a preoccupation of theirs to, you know, limit democracy however they can. Uh, in the United States, especially, you know, uh, in the wake of the civil rights movement. Francesca, what do you think in terms of continuity versus radicalization? I mean, I, I would agree with everything that Matthew laid out. And I think that's really, really great to remember um, just how, and especially for like comfortable liberals, elitist people who kind of had their things taken care of and are like, yeah, we're moving, marching towards progress that no, the right has always wanted to hold back progress that the civil rights act you know was not a natural conclusion um of like evolution you know no it was it was off the backs of a of a ton of work and decades and decades of struggle and we have stopped struggling and ergo we've stopped protecting the gains um of our democracy and you know, back to the, like, you mentioned earlier, is it a republic, is it a democracy? It's like saying, like, well, Panther's not actually a cat, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's the same thing. <laughs> like, it's like a constitutional republic and a democracy. The reason you hear conservatives say it's not a democracy, it's a republic, is because they don't want direct democracy. They want yeah. as little of it as possible. But even when you see the way the Senate was set up initially, it's like, yeah, it is. In, it protects minority rule. How are you going to have two representatives mm -hmm. per state when you've got a state with more sheep than people? On and on and on and on. So we know that, and this is why this week hurts so deep. And I'm not going to bring you the historical analysis, but I'll bring you the like, this is why it hurts, is because the right was already winning. Like big time. I mean, they were crushing it. Late stage capitalism, taking advantage of everyone's like overworked, exploited asses to just, you know, make more money. They were winning. And so this is just, oh, no. Now we see the goal is truly theocratic oligarchy, you know, uh, white male minority rule once again. <laughs> Last thing I'll say is. I think AOC gave a great response there. I think not a lot of people are breaking it down, but I think when in terms in, in terms of legitimacy, maybe Matthew can can explain more. But for me, learning about like the Supreme Court, if these are supposedly people who don't believe in institutions, I mean, they say they're originalists. Oh yeah, we're originalists, even though um, the musket was invented. There was only a musket when the Second Amendment was written and uh, bullets weren't invented yet. So if we believe it anyway, forget about the Second Amendment. But they say they're originalists, but really they're anti-institutionalists. They don't even believe that all the precedent that the Supreme Court set up that, yeah, can even stem from the 13th Amendment and the 14th Amendment, you know, and 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 the freedom of all people, yeah. the end of slavery, like the, those kinds of that that everything we live today is a product and, and all the rulings are a product of essentially trying to make what is has always been more of an idea than a reality which is american democracy trying to make that all the more honestly right with itself not perfect but just right with itself yeah if married people can have access to contraception then unmarried people should probably have access to contraception if gay people can have sex 
they could probably get married and on and on and on. And that's what the foundation of the Supreme Court in terms of rulings, giving rights, et cetera. And now we're rolling it back. And so the question is, when you start to roll it back, what where does it end? Are we just going to be re-enslaving people? I mean, Francesca, just and I'll put this to Matthew as well, but the the Republicans have only won the popular vote in a presidential election once in the last three decades. So it's an astonishing fact. It's only 2004. Um, I mean, before that, the last time they won the majority was 19, 1988. And yet they are reshaping, they are managing to reshape the nature of the US on their terms. A lot of people would look at that and think, how is how can you have a functioning democracy where the party which loses the popular vote in the presidential election every single time except once in the last three decades is transforming that country? How's that possible? Oh, I don't, I mean, you're asking me, it's not, it's, I think this is the biggest question. I see there's some people in the comments from Argentina, Colombia, shout out to them. I was reminded of so many US backed coups in the, in Latin America this week because of how close we know Trump was just straight up standing in front of the mob on January 6th. And, and, and like, in my mind, I'm like, but it can't happen here. But then you're like, oh, no, no, no. That's how it happens. It's when the strong man gets in front of the people, they fight even harder. You know, there's a fucking constitutional crisis, all that. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know if we can swear. Um, I mean, I think Matthew can answer no. that better, but I think, you know, the Electoral College also is part and parcel a relic of, you know, the ways that the founding fathers, not all of them, but like the part of, we do want to preserve minority rule. Let's let's get away from direct democracy as much as possible. We'll have the Senate. We'll have the Electoral College, um, which which uh, is absolutely not representative of of the people. So, I mean, how do we get out of it? Shit, I don't know. Matthew, how just set out how minority rule is has been enshrined? Because as I've said, one presidential election they've won the majority in three decades but that's right just once since 1992 (laughs) yes and uh you know six of the justices so what we just said you know one republican has won um the popular vote since 1992 that was george w bush in 2004 so that was kind of already coming on the heels that he was an incumbent because he essentially stole the the 2000 election right uh the the recount in florida bush v gore um uh, but yet six of the Supreme Court justice, justices have been appointed by Republicans during the same period of time. And I would just say two of them, uh, Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts, uh, the chief justice, worked on Bush's legal team in the Bush v. Gore Florida recount fight. So we have like very distinct ties there. Um, but yes, uh, I mean, Donald Trump appointed three of these justices and, uh, you know, he won three million fewer votes than Hillary Clinton. Uh, And, you know, he came to power because of the Electoral College, because of the way we count these votes. Uh, But I think, you know, uh, the court essentially knows, uh, especially since it's likely that the the right wing, the Republicans will have this majority for for years to come. I think they just know that there's not going to be real Democratic pushback anytime soon. They're kind of beyond uh, being checked by any kind of popular will or even, you know, because of the way the Senate is is designed. Again, California's 40 million residents have the same number of senators as Wyoming's 650,000, uh, so under a million at least, right? Uh, you know, so it's, it's it, what we're seeing is I think a, it's very hard to imagine how given the, the nature of our political system and the way it overlays the kind of geographic um, uh, sorting in our country, um, you know, some People estimate by 2040, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, 70 percent of the country will live in, you know, uh, states that have about 30 senators or something like that. As people move to places like New York or California, uh, you know, uh, that's so it's just very hard to imagine how, you know, uh, via democracy, there'll be in the system as it's currently constituted, how there will be really much opportunity to push back. Because to, to do these things, if the Democrats aren't going to get rid of the filibuster, they not only need 50 plus one, they need 60 votes in the Senate. And that's just as almost impossible to imagine in the near future. Um, Matthew, just on that, I mentioned a few rulings. I mean, they're really going for it, the Supreme Court. Um, and they've taken up this case on independent state legislature theory, which would mean legislatures are totally unchecked and supreme in deciding how elections are run. Now, this is all framed, isn't it, states' rights, which the pedigree of states' rights, of course, goes back to the US. <laughs> uh-huh. 
civil war and the rights of states to to have slavery um but just talk me what does that mean in practice because some people might go well states running their own elections what's wrong with that <laughs> well um you're right the supreme court agreed to hear in their next term uh, a case that comes out of north carolina about the independent state legislature doctrine uh and this was something the kind of thing uh, i mean i guess I, I pointed to some continuity uh if you're looking at the conservative movement you know as a whole these past few decades but this is the kind of thing that even a few years ago would have i think been seen as uh almost unimaginably radical uh, because mm -hmm. it's it's you know what what they're saying is uh, in the North Carolina case basically the state supreme court struck down a highly gerrymandered uh, gerrymandered in a partisan way uh, um, uh, uh, map in terms of congressional districts uh, so on and so forth so essentially you know uh, uh, what this case could decide is whether or not uh, courts can check uh, the behavior of of, of state legislatures at all or you know um, the way states design their election laws how they draw these maps there's no check on it at all if they say yes the, this independent state legis legislature doctrine is true and that would basically mean that republicans because they control uh legislatures in 30 of the 50 states democrats have total control of only 17 that would mean in the states where republicans control the legislature they could essentially draw maps that keep them in power uh in perpetuity Right. There, yeah. there would be any competitive, um, you know, they, they draw as many non-competitive districts as they can, as many districts to help Republicans as they can, you know, uh, and, and that's what that case is about. There's a lot of other things that could happen because of it. I mean, it would create possibly a kind of patchwork of, you know, uh, 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 election laws varying, you know, drastically state by state. Uh, and there would be no way to, again, uh, uh, check this behavior because it's saying that no state court can can do that. And, you know, this comes out of the 2020 election and Donald Trump's lies about having a, a landslide victory stolen from him. Uh, because yeah. if you remember, because of the pandemic, things like early voting were expanded, mail-in ballots uh, were expanded. And often these were courts kind of making these decisions in a kind of emergency way because of the pandemic. And that's another thing that would stop. So even, you know, if there's a circumstance where uh, it makes sense to keep a voting of certain poll open for a few more hours because there's a long line, um, you know, judges will often in an emergency make those decisions. And this is saying it's only the state legislature okay. can determine the nature and manner of uh, how even federal elections are run in that state. I mean, it was arguably one of our more democratic elections, right, Matthew? Like, like the amount of like mail-in voting, early voting, you know, drive-through voting, like everyone mm -hmm. vote, you know? And and yet, yes. you know, they're trying to put that cad back in the bag, of course. And even, mm -hmm. you know, the so-called, you know, noble Republicans, I, I, know, I don't know if anyone calls them that, I'm, but uh, except for Democrats. No but one should. <laughs> no one, no one should. Be, but the people who are like, yeah, no, Trump lost. And that's why I'm going to pass all these laws to make sure that if another Trump tries to do a coup again, he can. And it's not so obvious as if they didn't already do that in the year 2000. And I've always said, I feel like we live in the upside down of uh, Bush v. Gore and uh, that Supreme Court decision. Yeah, my life could have been so different. You guys, the world could have been so different. I mean, Francesca, just just want to talk about Roe v. Wade. And this was obviously the landmark 1973 ruling, which under it was covered on the right to privacy, but the right of women safeguarded across the United States to have abortions. What does, tell me about what the, the impact of that already is, but also why is it so central to the conservative project in the United States in a way it isn't actually here in Britain? Um, I mean, if you look at polling, about 90% of people in Britain support the right to abortion. So it's harder to start a culture war over that particular issue. And they haven't bothered in the same way conservatives here don't, overtly come out and say they oppose uh, nationalized healthcare. It's a different context. But what, what, just talk, talk us through the impact of why you think it's so central to the US conservative project. But I also think that that's super relevant. I think that the attitudes towards healthcare overall, as I'm on the streets chanting abortion is healthcare, you sort of dawns on you that you're like, oh, and this country treats healthcare like a commodity, like a, you know, like a privilege and not a right, like something that you have to be rich in order to truly afford well. And so it has to do with, I mean, the fight going forward in my mind is a broader um, much more all-encompassing fight for universal health care in addition to reproductive and abortion rights. I mean, I don't know. I think that, 
you know, the Republicans in this country treat women like they were some uh, Indiana Jones relic that got removed from its place, the kitchen. And once they return it, then the spell will be broken. Manufacturing jobs will come back and, um, you know, their penises will grow two inches in size. I, uh, I'm not sure what they want. Uh, you know, once women stop living their free lives and have the freedom of choice, um, I don't know. Everything will be back to normal and uh, we can take away their vote. Shit. I don't know. So I, I am. But I do know that this is very much a win for the Mike Pence's of the Republican Party, who, again, perhaps under uh, under Trump felt, um, gee, I don't want to be hanged or, you know, like this guy is clearly immoral. I think some of those Christian conservatives are are maybe coming back into the fold because honestly, this is a win for them, despite 60 percent of the country, if not more, being against this ruling, being against overturning Roe v. Wade. The 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 result. I mean, I'll tell you right now, all of the like amazing abortion clinics and funds that I used to, you know, follow and and track and donate money to, and celebrate in states that already had um, draconian laws on the books that were starting to chip away at Roe. Right, um, you know, like obviously the Dobbs decision, and and those are done. They're closed. I mean, independent women's health clinics in Texas that were um, near the border and rural areas and places where people couldn't access health care, couldn't access abortion. Um, they've shuttered. They cannot bear the legal consequences should those come down on them. Planned Parenthood even, which you'd imagine could withstand this stuff. No, they're, they're closing too in states that have trigger bans that where automatically any abortion is illegal. There are some stays in certain uh, and some injunctions in certain states. So like there's like six more weeks to get an abortion or four more weeks to get an abortion. But what that means is a young woman from Ohio, not a woman, a 10 year old girl just had to travel. Uh, I believe, um, I believe, or she was going to Indiana or she was traveling from Indiana probably makes more sense in, Forgive me, but a 10 year old girl was basically denied an abortion at her home yeah. in her home state and had to travel to go get it. Right. It means, you know, there are stories now verified, unverified, anecdotal, et cetera, of women who are having ectopic pregnancies. That's where a, a fetus will start growing in the fallopian tubes and they can't get medical treatment and they will die. They will bleed out unless they get medical treatment. And so. You know, I was watching this, like the the documentary on HBO about the Janes, who in the '70s in Chicago basically ran an underground early six early '70s, late '60s ran an underground abortion clinic. They were badass, badass bitches. Let's be real. And I think we need more of those. I mean, that's what we're gonna see. We are going to see people go underground, be clandestine, and save lives, as well as providers saving lives. Um, and it's gonna be on us because we haven't even gotten to the Democrats. But they've hung us out to dry. They saw this coming a mile away. I'm sure Matthew could tell you. But if if we can track the conservative movement, the Democrats can track the conservative movement. Before I ask about the Democrats, that's a, obviously a very important part of all of this. Um, Tad, I should say, by the way, people do put questions through Super Chat, as Tad Campbell has, uh, support the show. But he said, do the panel think it's possible that anti-mission miss i can never say this word miscegenation i will explain that will be reversed in some states in the next 10 years i'm getting tripping over negatives there basically what that means is for those who don't know it's referring to uh the repeal under the old racist segregation laws in many southern states mixed race relationships marriages were, were prohibited um and obviously that has because of the civil rights struggle was obviously forcibly removed um but I suppose the question is, how far is the Supreme Court likely to go? There's talk one of the judges opened up the prospect, obviously, of LGBTQ rights. There is, we're already seeing in places like Florida, they don't say gay laws, of course, so, and we're seeing an anti-trans uh, moral panic um, as well. That's all coming, they're all very much in sync. So I guess, how much further do you think this Supreme Court could actually go? anyone uh, well i mean i think uh overturning say uh loving versus virginia which you know um uh allowed uh basically black and white people to marry each other uh uh you know i i think that kind of thing is less likely to go but i definitely think uh, uh lgbt rights are on the chopping block um uh you know uh, uh clarence thomas in his opinion in the 
in the Dobbs case, explicitly name check Obergefell uh, and Lawrence, uh, in addition to uh, Griswold, the, the, uh, a case that uh, you know, said the right to privacy included the ability to buy contraception. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, but but the, uh, uh, Lawrence, of course, struck down uh, anti-sodomy law in Texas. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, Obergefell was the same-sex marriage decision. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't want to predict, but I wouldn't be shocked if uh, Obergefell and Lawrence were, were eventually overturned. Yeah. Uh, which would essentially criminalize, especially, you know, overturning Lawrence. It would mean states could pass anti-sodomy laws. And when you look at some of the other bills, uh, uh, Owen, you mentioned uh, the don't say gay bills, you know, the, the rash of anti-trans bills. Uh, you know, it's just I don't I, I, I think it could go quite far. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. Which is ironic. I mean, it's, I mean, Justice Clarence Thomas, of course, is in an interracial relationship. Um, so he might stop there. But also, Ginny Thomas has been up to no good. She was like texting the chief of staff uh, to President Trump before the coup. So I feel like maybe this is his like way of like, you know, absolving himself from any sort of legal responsibility. Like, oh my God, we're not even supposed to be married. Um, so let's overrule that and I get off. No, it's, yeah, it'll keep on going. Um, and I also think that, you know, I'm of two minds on this strategy where people say, let's just protect, let's, let's, let's not sort of dither in the constitutionality of this and that let's not, you know, lower ourselves to that discussion of like abortion's not even in the constitution it it does you know butt sex is not even in the constitution you're like yeah yeah we know um and and so i'm partly swayed by that like let's just argue you know for you know all rights civil rights abortion rights included but i do think it's important to see how these things were established and someone who's not a constitutional lawyer someone who doesn't understand these things but who, but but who owes a lot of you know we live in this country and we should understand that the right to privacy is what is holding a lot of these rights together and that is has traditionally been something that at least rhetorically the right loves to claim my right to privacy small government get out of my you know my my pocketbook my you know, this and that you know like don't tell me where i can't dump toxic sludge etc 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 and yet that is the that's the foundation for all of these rights is that right to privacy i think that we need to take up that mantle of privacy and take up that mantle of freedom freedom to choose freedom to marry freedom to whomever you know be with whomever you love all of these things, um, the corporate stuff, the ways that the Supreme Court is sort of cherry picking other pieces to hand corporations even more rights. That is that feels like it falls under a different rubric. Um, but shit, man, let's throw workers rights into it, too. Um, and the right to unionize, for example. But yeah, so that's how I approach it. So you both mentioned the Democrats. Liam Bailey said, I think the Democrats are sellouts and they've let this happen. Democrats are right wing and they will not fight for the people, only money. Both parties serve the same people. Let's just see the Democrats' response to Roe versus Wade being overturned. Oh, 
cute. Yeah, um, interesting. Just have a little sing song. Um, yeah, a lot of people have pointed out that they take Ray versus Wade. Could have seen that one coming, probably. Uh, could have codified it. They did under Obama. They had sweeping control of everything uh, for a while, 2008-10. What do you think about the general democratic response to what is currently unfurling in the United States? And I think the, the point I made before, the Democrats' position is... So you've got the so-called Republican Revolution in 1994, which I really think starts the kind of right-wing Republican insurgency just won't accept the legitimacy even of a timid conservative democratic administration and and the democrats are like oh let's reach across the aisle let's work together and the, and the republicans are like scorched earth destroy everything yeah i mean what, what do you both think about the democrat gen so the response to this and how it fits in that order Matthew? uh what i mean the response has been pathetic. Uh, the clip you showed of the singing, it was after they passed the uh, gun legislation. So it right. wasn't singing in response to Roe, but it's one of those right. things where you're like, is there no one in this party who can say, now's not the time to do this? Even if it was, you know, in response to something else, um, it's just, it just doesn't look great. And you have Nancy Pelosi, of course, reading this poetry, um, you know, yeah. uh, the, and is. I think, you know, Owen, you said they should have seen it coming. We had, we literally had the draft majority opinion a month before uh, the ruling actually came down. So even if you want to put on historical blinders, uh, you could just say in the last month, they couldn't figure out what to do. It was, you know, Kamala Harris's responses have been pathetic and, and kind of uh, just argo bargo. Like, you know, you can barely make sense of what she's saying. You know, Biden hasn't been much better. Um, you know, and I think part of it is Joe Biden's pushing 80. Uh, the House leadership, uh, uh, Pelosi, Clyburn, and Steny Hoyer are all over 80. These are people who came of age, uh, you know, in a, in a different time in some ways. And I think they're wedded to these institutions. They just want everything to go back to normal. But the way the right wing has, you know, it, the, the plays they're making right now, it's just that's just totally uh, untenable. Uh, now, of course, you know, there are limits to what Democrats can do precisely because of the nature of the our political institutions, our constitution that I mentioned. It's very hard, you know, even an issue like abortion where there's, you know, uh, it's tricky to poll, but there is definitely a solid, uh, you know, majority that believes in, in uh, some right to choose. And, you know, but that doesn't matter in part, again, because of, you know, it's uh, the institutions, they're kind of the possibility minority role, the kind of way they thwart popular uh, energies, popular democracy. So it's, it's, you know, uh, it's not clear what they can do. Uh, in some ways, they should have been thinking about this for a long time. Uh, and even, you know, uh, you know, uh, Owen, you mentioned 1994, the 2010 midterms, uh, when Democrats were really wiped out, you know, that's, to me, at least from that point on, at least they've had a, over a decade to kind of see this surge and try to respond to it somehow. Uh, and they just didn't seem to have anything prepared because I, I just again, you could admit the Democrats don't have a great hand right now. You know, they they control the House and the presidency in the Senate. But, you know, they, the Senate majority isn't enough to really do anything with, again, because they won't get rid of the filibuster. Um, you know, there are there are limited executive actions Biden can take. But what I'm saying yeah. is they didn't have a unified message. They didn't have a, a, a plan to ask people to help them fight back. And, you know, even if the options in front of them right now are not great, Biden could have had say, I'm going to do these five things using my power as, as the executive to try to make a dent in this uh, yeah. or at least to show he's willing to fight. And that's the, the, the kind of. Um, you know, what's shocking does seem to be the lack of urgency. And again, the lack of any kind of plan or coherent approach. It just seemed like people were not on the same page, you know, different Democrats saying different things. It really was just a pathetic spectacle. Yeah, utterly. And, and I will just echo that and say that even someone like Nancy Pelosi in the wake of Hillary Clinton um, losing, mind you, that all the Democrat, like Democratic leadership were super ready to throw Hillary Clinton under the bus for so-called identity politics. I mean, they were like, you know, she needed to talk about being a woman less. Pelosi was like, we need to, you know, move to the center. What are we missing? Remember that this was the rhetoric and Nancy Pelosi up until obviously, oh, I'm sorry, a month ago was campaigning for an anti-choice Democrat in Texas against a young pro-choice, uh, I mean, yeah, pro-choice young Latina progressive. Progressive, just the key word there. Um, and so, up until it was never a litmus test 
are you going to not just protect, but expand the rights of women and people who can get pregnant in this country? Are you going to expand reproductive rights? Are you going to expand maternal health rights? Are you going to expand parental leave, universal childcare? Do you give a shit about families? Yes or no? So like it never was a litmus test. And so they're on, I'm sorry, but like as, as middle of the road, um, and honestly, I think as complacent as the the nonprofit industrial complex around reproductive rights got, whether it's Planned Parenthood or others, they were not protected for all of the money and all of the secure votes and all of the calls that they made on behalf of these Democrats to get them elected. They they never had their their rights looked after. They never had abortion rights on, um, in the forefront. You saw Obama in 2007 promise on the campaign trail he was going to pass the Reproductive Freedom Act, and he never did. So why again now? And look, I totally agree with Matthew, and I am absolutely of the mind that we vote defensively and strategically. And you're damn right you should expand the, the, you know, the, the majority, slim majority in the Senate because that's what we've been given. But the reality is, is that every time we have, the Democrats have not chosen to actually do anything to expand civil rights, mm -hmm. especially around reproductive rights, again, that have been sort of uh, lang um, languishing since, two, uh, since 73. And so you're like, okay, what, what, can we, what can we do? What can Democrats do? Give us a listicle. Give us a BuzzFeed listicle of what you're going to do, you know, make it real simple. And then, yeah, you can mobilize some people, but without a plan and without like a, even a little bit of a mea culpa, like we know we saw this coming guys. The reason there was a massive women's March, which with all people of all genders, races, classes, I mean, the largest March in American history was because we all saw this coming. So it's not even about the April leak, right? It's about the election of Donald Trump and going back even before, obviously, Obama. And the last thing I'm going to say is that 2010 uh, uh, midterm, as Matthew's saying, is so important. And then the other thing that happens is you've got Citizens United and you've got the influx of dark money coming into our political system, and you've got the creation of the Judicial Crisis Network. You've got the orchestrating, the manufacturing of cases um, like Dobbs versus the Jackson, Mississippi Clinic. You've got these right-wing uh, anti-choice lawyers and um, being like, I'll take that case. Yes, we're gonna challenge Roe here. We're gonna challenge Roe here. We're gonna challenge Roe here. We saw this coming for so long. The grooming of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett from the days of Bush, you know, to, to now. We saw this coming. And so then now to pretend that, oh, we were, you know, Kamala Harris, the vice president, you know, she literally said, it's one thing when you know it's going to happen and it's another thing when it does. <sighs> Gee, that's something I would say over Rosé. Stop it. <laughs> just, just, just lastly, because I know we've overrun. Uh, but we started a bit late, but we've we've overrun it. Some, and I know you, you're both very busy people. So, just finally, because I talked about you know, you know, how hyperbolic is it to suggest that the U.S. could, however limited and caveated its democracy has always been, how much is it on the slide to some sort of? If you look at Hungary, people might say, well, look, Hungary not that long ago was under dictatorship, therefore its democratic culture is weak, and so on, and. But how, how much do you think there is a prospect of the U.S. sliding into some sort of open, outright, right-wing authoritarianism as a state? Um, and what about the prospect of civil conflict? This is a heavily armed country. Those who have the most arms tend to be, of course, those with a conservative disposition. So <laughs> one, one side is, is, has a huge military advantage if we're going to start, I'm afraid, talking in very crude terms. How hyperbolic is all of that chatter? What do you think, Matthew? It's not hyperbolic. Um, uh, when we were talking about the independent state legislature doctrine, it really is the case that if the Supreme Court uh, affirms that that exists, uh, that that doctrine is true, uh, you know, we really could see, and again, 30 states controlled by Republicans, essentially, you know, locking themselves into power uh, in perpetuity. 
uh, again, the, the anti-democratic nature of our constitution kind of allows for minority rule. And that's, you know, collided with the different sorts of uh, geographic sorting I mentioned earlier, so on and so forth. Where I'm going is, I, I think it's totally possible. Um, again, because uh, we're, we're, I mean, they're laying the groundwork for it now. Um, you know, the wave of voter suppression bills after the 2020 election, again, because of the kind of expansions in ways to vote, um, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, uh, you, you know, it's kind of this, a number of things coming together right now. And, uh, you know, I just think that's a very real possibility. And, you know, the, the intellectuals on the right, the kind of propaganda machine, they're talking differently than they used to. It's not the moral majority. They don't appeal to a majority anymore. They just want their way. And, you know, um, this, the Civil War question, you know, I, we talked about this once with the New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie uh, on, on my podcast, Know Your Enemy. And, you know, it's, it's the kind of civil war that we had, you know, in 18... 1860s in the United States, that's not likely, like two big armies, right, you know, like fighting over territory. But I think the the, the gun laws, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, Supreme Court striking down states' ability to limit concealed carry, you know, who can carry guns in public, uh, I, I think what we'll see is just that, you know, um, not, again, a, a kind of clash of army, but just a kind of almost private enforcement of these traditional hierarchies of, you know, who they want to put down, who they want to suppress, who they want to uh, persecute, right? Because it's um, just like the Texas abortion law that had the bounty hunter aspect to it, where if mm -hmm. you suspect someone of getting an abortion and, uh, you know, it's, it's true, you, you kind of start that case, uh, you, they offered $10,000. So you have these kind of bounty hunter laws, everyone on the right, you know, can carry a gun wherever they want now. Um, you know, it's you kind of put these things together and it's a, a really toxic and ugly mix. And I don't really know where it, it goes from there. Um, you know, yeah. there might be the appearance of elections and, you know, just like there are in Hungary. Uh, but, uh, you know, so I, I, I think it will be a kind of slow motion and punctuated sometimes by moments of more extremity, like this last Supreme Court term. Uh, but I, I really think this is could, where we could be be drifting you put put it all together the voter suppression laws the way the supreme court's behaving guns uh, bounty hunter laws it's just it's kind of sociopathic it's an attack on kind of the very idea of a democratic society itself mm -hmm. to be honest okay. francesca yeah, and I would just say that, that, that you've already seen that low-level violence, whether it's the reactions to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which, again, is the reaction to, once again, the state already killing Black and Brown innocent bodies. Like, that that's, that, that's already the status quo. Nope, not far enough. Um, and you see that, you know, in, in Buffalo, in, in the murder of uh, Black Americans targeted specifically because they are Black and because of our loose gun laws. So it's happening on a low level. And I think we're in this like sort of disgusting state of, well, as long as it just doesn't happen to me, I'm okay. And and so in, in a weird way, I wanna describe how it is to like live in this country right now. It's almost like, you know, that's not our mentality. That's for me as someone on the left who believes in solidarity, but I feel like because of the inaction and because of the right wing push, it's like, everyone is sort of forced into that kind of mentality um, um, by nature because that's sort of the, what you're living under right now. Mm -hmm. And I think it is important, lastly, to understand like the thing that gives me a little bit of hope um, was when I focus on people like Reverend William Barber uh, mm -hmm. of the Moral Mondays mm -hmm. movement and the Poor People's Campaign, who really openly talks about the third reconstruction and the idea being the first reconstruction was unfinished was not protected, that black Americans recently freed were left hung out to dry, really. I mean, they were left high and dry by their government um, for various reasons. The, the Confederacy, um, yeah, they lost. But did they really get, did they really suffer the consequences they needed to suffer other than losing their property? Maybe not. So there's a first, the second, obviously the civil rights movement. And the third is something that we have not seen yet. And so this vision of, and this is why I think racial justice um, and civil rights play such a crucial role. And you can we, let's talk about women's rights. Let's talk about LGBTQ, LGBTQ rights. But all of that is like, for me, part of it as well. Um, but when you understand, like, again, like if Reaganism was like the 
or Nixon or Reaganism, sort of like that, that, that the finalization of the nail in the civil rights coffin kind of thing. You know, I think we have to, we're still reeling from the backlash of the first black president as much of a, a failure on so many levels he was. Gun sales doubled under Obama. Mm. And in that, in this country, that's like 16 million guns a year being mm. sold. And so this is very much, you know, the one thing Trump has done is, you know, we just like a dog being shown its mess, like just shoving our face in our racist history. And we need to understand this more than ever and understand that, like, I do think that listening to um, civil rights leaders, people coming from the South, people focusing on voting rights. That, that those aren't milk toast issues. Those are real issues um, that we, that need to be at the forefront of this next fight. Um, I sure as hell hope it doesn't come to armed conflict because uh, you know I'm not good with weapons, but I can scream very loud and I can entertain crowds. And I don't know, but it's uh, or I can move to New Zealand. So there's lots of lots of fun. <laughs> Guys, it's, uh, been so, it's been such an honor, not the cheeriest conversation, but we work with the material we've got, what we're supposed to do. <laughs> Abricate right. a world in which everything is is looking rosy. It isn't. It's pretty terrible. So we might as well be honest about it. But um, it was nonetheless cathartic, but also um, uh, extremely enlightening. So thank you, both of you. And for those either watching or listening, uh, do follow uh, Francesca Friantini and listen to her The Bituation Room podcast. And of course, Matthew Sitman, um, Know Your Enemy podcast. Um, do check out their work and support them mm-hmm. uh, in any way that you can. But honestly, both of you really, really appreciate your time speaking to us, of course, both from across the Atlantic. It was uh, fantastic stuff. So take care. I'll speak to you soon. Thank Bye-bye. You. Thank you. Take care now. Bye. Great stuff from both of them. Um, cheery <laughs> be nice wouldn't it to do a podcast about things not being uh, a burning skip for a change um there is hope out there i mean i always say this i mean if i, I do think though i i eschew generational conflict right, in terms of pitting young versus old um it is nonetheless the case that younger generations on both sides of the atlantic are uniquely progressive by historical standards then a divide has opened up politically between the generations um which is not actually something you would you kind of expect to happen the cliche of people drifting to the right over age traditionally younger people voted similar ways to their parents or grandparents not the case anymore um but there is still obviously a very um entrenched embedded and aggressive uh, reactionary movement sweeping much of the western world at the moment uh, which poses a threat even to the limited forms of democracy that we have under capitalism. And I think we have to be completely honest about that. Um, it's not cheery, but we have to talk about it. We'll have lots more in terms of coverage about what's happening over in the US and elsewhere. I think we need to do something more about Latin America. We did The last one we did about Latin America was the fantastic uh, win in Chile for the left, but we've had since Colombia, the first left-wing president in, in history, um, of Colombia that joins a array, a whole a, array of left wing of progressive governments which have come to power across Latin America. The one big exception remaining, of course, is Brazil. Um, but Bolsonaro, hopefully, according to the polls, faces defeat by Lula in the coming elections in just a few months, and that then would mean I'm trying to look for hope, salvage hope in a world of so much terrible reaction. Um, of 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 you know a, a, an onslaught against democracy against social and economic rights um you can see in latin america how things can suddenly shift quite dramatically including in a country like colombia where frankly it's the most dangerous place in the world to be a trade unionist where the state machine has bloodily uh liquidated i hate that expression but um you know used it to to liquidate the left and 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 trade union activists and yet now the left is in power in colombia so things can shift um i wish they'd shift a bit quicker (laughs) uh we can see in france as well macron has just lost uh his parliamentary majority it's a mixed bag there because the far right have got their best ever showing 
Um, and again, it just shows, you know, the far right on the march across Europe. Spain's another example. Um, you know, Spain was the big exception for ages. You know, the rise of Podemos on the left, there was this whole kind of Spain's unique um, compared to other comparable Western European nations because it doesn't have this mass far right party. And then Vox came along and has surged to, I'm afraid, you know, often nearly topping the opinion polls, albeit in a very fragmented electoral system. Uh, in which multiple parties get, no one gets higher than 25 or 26 or 27%. But nonetheless, grim. Um, so the struggle goes on, uh, both uh, in the United States and across Europe uh, and across the world, the wider world. And we can see, as I've said, in Latin America, which was really the testing ground for neoliberalism, let's not forget. That's where neoliberalism, not least in Chile, was enforced. It was a huge human laboratory for neoliberalism. And yet you can see a range of progressive governments since elected to challenge neoliberalism. So hopefully, eventually we'll get there. Um, I'm probably not going to, I was going to talk about Labour quickly, but I don't think I've got the emotional space. Needless to say, <laughs> um, we can see this week, um, Keir Starmer, again, the evidence that he run the most deceitful leadership election, the most deceitful campaign for the leadership of a major political party in history, continuing to disregard the pledges he made, the radical domestic policies, party unity, uh, calling the 2017 manifesto the foundational document of the Labour Party, uh, all to get elected to the Labour Party, and now he is running a rampant neo-Blairite project. Now, there's all this, all this stick about will he get fined by different police? I mean, my own view on that, you know, as much as I have a big, huge political opposition to Starmerism, which is a duplicitous leadership a deceitful leadership which conned its way into power um and which is a vacuum which offers nothing in way of vision for the country at all and is just you know ahead though one poll recently was only three points ahead but ahead in the polls purely because the Tories have set themselves on fire nothing that Labour's done has contributed to that but um if the I, you know if I, I hope actually doing please don't find him because I don't like the I mean the fact he put his political career in the hands of the Durham police because he said he'd resign if he's given a fixed penalty notice. I think it was utterly bizarre, actually, in hindsight. Don't, shouldn't really, I don't like the idea that a politician can be forced out by the police. I just don't like it as a concept. Um, I would prefer if he was removed just for being a duplicitous, dishonest leader with no charisma, vision, or anything, um, who, you know, is, is hoping to win by default because the toys are so shit. Anyway, um, I'm going to leave it there because I did overdo it slightly for Pride yesterday. Um, Pride, of course, was a great day. Um, I did overdo it. But uh, it comes in the context of, despite decades of struggle, winning huge rights, changing public attitudes, a, a backlash. Ooh. Um, the anti-trans moral panic in this country, uh, which is also ricocheting more broadly. And over in the United States, we can see how the onslaught against trans people, against LGB people, and against uh, women's rights are all in tandem. So I think, uh, sorry, this is for those listening, I'm just struggling with Rickman, who's being a bit uppity. Um, yeah, it's uh, it just shows how it all is in sync and how LGBTQ people need to stand together with, with women, with obviously lots of LGBTQ people are women, uh, and uh, and minorities. Uh, we've got to join the dots and uh, have a collective struggle. We've got lots of interviews to come, lots of coverage to come, not least about the summer of discontent, trade union struggle, uh, the trade union struggles. We've seen the rail workers winning the battle for public opinion in this country. Um, uh, one recent poll shows most people support the strike. Historically, that's pretty unique, by the way, um, in terms of the level of support. Uh, in the miners' strike, the miners did not have public support. The polling is very bad for the miners. Historic, they've won the battle of history because everything they warned about happened. But at the time, they didn't have public support. Um, and I think that just shows, actually, there is an appetite for a genuine resistance against the Tory government, against, we've seen Mick Lynch as a phenomenon because he, he actually offered courageous leadership, um, uncompromising leadership. And I think it resonated with workers suffering the longest squeeze in wages since the Napoleonic era. Uh, so we've got lots of coverage of that to come. So do support that on patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. Press like and subscribe. Thank you to um, uh, Liam Bailey, Tad Campwell, and someone else. I don't know who it was. I'm so sorry. But whoever you were, 
Thank you. Uh, press like and subscribe and listen and support the podcast. Thanks so much, everyone. Uh, really appreciate it. Lots of love. And we've got lots to come. So I'll see you in a bit. Lots of love. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon.